Did you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they've become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. Welcome to The Moment. Thank you for joining me today. I'm Chris Epting, and my guest today is a really special musician. His name is Walter Trout. He is one of the preeminent American blues guitarists of his generation. Um, Interestingly, I live in Huntington Beach, California, and Walter in the mid-1970s landed here from back east here in Huntington Beach. And really, uh, before he kind of broke out big on his own, I mean, he would eventually start out playing with, uh, gosh, everybody from from Canned Heat to to John Mayall. I mean, some of the, the real, real blues legends, artists and bands and whatnot before embarking on his own solo career. But he and Huntington Beach developed this really special relationship. And so we talk about that here in the show. And uh, again, uh, Walter has been through so much in his life as he will detail a number of years ago he actually had a liver transplant which became a really big story because of how fans pulled together and helped him uh, get over that that immense hurdle as did his wife uh, Walter now is in Denmark and his wife uh, that's her home country and he's over there kind of uh, hunkering down to ride out the uh, coronavirus pandemic so that's where we're speaking to him from today and really hope you enjoy this conversation he's, he's an amazing guy I want you to go also check out his website waltertrout.com you can hear his new album called Ordinary Madness which is wonderful as well as lots of other uh, Walter Trout related music and merchandise and things there so without further ado here uh, a long distance conversation with myself and the great blues player, blues guitar player, and singer, Walter Trout. Well, Walter, thank you. Uh, thank you for joining me. You and I have never spoken before. We've had great sort of social media communications, but we've never spoken person to person. That's right. And I've been aware of you for so long, man. Like I was telling you, I, I used to go years ago, every time you came out with a book of like Orange County history or Huntington Beach history, I was the first one to pick it up. And a lot of times I would look at some of those photos and I would go to the places to see what it looked like now. I really wow. got into it, you know. Well, man, that's funny because I, around that same time, I was probably picking up your music. So we've been, we've been silently supporting each other. So this is the long overdue that we finally get a chance to chat. This, this is great, man. Well, to, where, where are you right now where, as we're talking right now? I am in a little fishing village on the North Sea in the far northwest corner of Denmark. I am in a little house which is on the very edge of the first national park of Denmark, so that if you walk out the back door of our little place, directly out the back door, you are in these giant sand dunes and you walk over about a quarter mile of the sand dunes, and you go down a cliff, and you're at the North Sea. Oh, my and, goodness. And um, you walk 10 minutes up the beach, and you're in this little fishing village, um, small little place where the guys go out and fish in the morning, and they pull the boats up on the beach and sell the fish out. And it's, it's kind of like going back through time, and it, it's it's a beautiful place. Do you, do you get to enjoy the fish they catch? Is it something that you you are able to purchase there, or like how often do you get to? Uh, you know, in Scandinavia, um, I mean, 
fish, they have it all the time. You know, I mean, you end up having fish for dessert, you know, it's <laughs> kind of the mainstay in Scandinavia, especially right here in this little town, right on the North Sea. And directly across us, across from us is Norway. Um, so we're, we're pretty, uh, you know, that corner of the world here. Now, what, now tell us what you're doing there. Why are you there? Well, my wife um, is from here. She's from a town that is near here. It's a half an hour from here. Her mom still lives there. Her family is here. So um, all my family, they're, they're all gone. So the family that I have is my in-laws. They're all here. Mm-hmm. And uh, we still have our place in Huntington Beach. You know, we're never going to get rid of our house in Huntington Beach. But it was... Both my wife and I are um, immunocompromised, and the virus was really scaring us. Mm-hmm. And so we're kind of, if we're going to be sequestered here, this, mm-hmm. this is the place to do it, because there's, there's hardly any virus up here. Um, and you're going to be you know, there then for... In- open and, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, so you'll be there then into next year, uh, at least in the, uh, the near future? Uh, um, it, a lot of it sort of depends on how the virus transpires over there. But I, I do have this desire at the beginning of next year to make another record. And I have been sitting out here in the dunes playing guitar and writing songs. And I think I'm coming up with some good stuff. So I've, I've talked to my band and said, man, I'm really getting the, the, the itch here to make another album. Well, that's pretty incredible, given that you just came out um, with the record recently that I'd like to talk about a little bit. Um, Ordinary Madness was was released right before all the the madness that we're experiencing now hit, right, Walter? Yes, it was. And um, luckily, we finished it just before everything shut down. So we were able to actually finish the tracks and have it mixed and mastered. and. so we, we were very lucky in that because, um, you know, once the lockdown happened, there was no way I was going to be driving to a studio in L.A. every day. You sure. Know? Well, I got to tell you, Walter, hearing it, I mean, I, I'm, I always marvel as, as, as a blues, big blues fan myself. Um, you know, you're, you're a modern day guy, but you, you're imbued with the, with the old school, you can tell. And I think you're playing on the, on the new record, the latest record. Is, uh, is remarkable, and it seems like it just gets more seasoned, and it feels like you discover more things each time out. I mean, there's a, there's like you're digging, feels like you're digging deeper and deeper and deeper like all the old great blues guys always did, and, and producing things that are just, uh, you just keep upping the ante with each release. That's really kind of you to say. I mean, thank you for that, Chris, but I do have to say that... Um, I'm at age 69. This was my 29th album under my own name. I'm still trying to get better at my craft. I, I still really work at it. I, I want to write better songs and I want to play better and I want to sing better. And, and these days, I feel like I'm kind of at my creative peak at my age. I mean, I'm just busting to make a new album and get these songs out. and. Um, you know, I, I had that illness where I had the transplant, um, mm-hmm. what was that, six years ago now, and 
since then, music means more to me than it ever did. Um, it, it's, it almost became a new thing. You know, I, I had brain damage, so I lost the ability to play the guitar, and I had to relearn. I had to start from scratch and teach myself all over again. And so when I got back from the hospital after I had been in that bed for eight months, um, I spent three hours a day down at Hogue. They have an incredible physical therapy um, facility at Hogue Hospital, just this amazing physical therapy. I was there three hours a day, and then I was home relearning the guitar for six or seven hours, and I had to start from scratch. And, well, um, for people... So for people that are that are unaware of what you went through, because it really is one of the most epic comebacks, like in modern music history, it, it really is a story for the ages. If you if you had to capsulize it for people that are unaware of what you went through six years ago, I mean, those of us that kind of followed it in real time remember it well. But how do you recount it for people that don't know about it? Um. Well, I can start from the beginning. Um, I was on tour years ago and I started having weird symptoms happen to me like equilibrium problems where I'd get incredibly dizzy on stage and would have to hold on to something or I would I would have to sit down and and then I started where my whole body would cramp up and my whole body would feel like a charley horse and my hands would close and I couldn't open them so I couldn't play the guitar so I would I would play the harmonica. I would just tell the people, I feel like playing the harmonica now. And I'd play the harp until I could reopen my fingers. And um, we weren't sure what was going on. I went in and got checked and found out that I had a disease called hepatitis C and that it was eating my liver. And for a while, I just thought, well, I'll just have to live with it. And I started eating organic food and trying to live really clean. And I, I've already been sober for years. I've been clean and sober since 87. Right. And, um, but eventually, it got the best of me. And, and I was put into the hospital. I started in Hogue. And they said, no, we don't have the facilities here to take care of you. And they transferred me to UCLA. And in UCLA, they basically told my wife, we can't help him. He's going to die. You have to be prepared for him to die. And um, are you aware of a, a great blues singer named Curtis Salgado? Absolutely. Uh, Curtis had a transplant, a liver transplant in Omaha, Nebraska, and he had this amazing doctor, and he called my wife, and he said, Marie, I want to give you the number of this doctor in Nebraska, and he's a miracle worker. And uh, Curtis had been to four different transplant centers, and they had told him they couldn't help him. And he found Dr. Daniel Schaefer in Omaha. Daniel Schaefer saved his life. Well, my wife called up Dan Schaefer. He said, well, bring him out here. And one morning at 6 a.m., my wife and another friend of hers showed up, and they dragged me out of ICU. They carried me onto an airplane. We flew to Omaha. And um, I ended up, though, in Omaha. I was in bed for eight months before they found a liver match. And in that eight months, I developed brain damage. I lost 120 pounds. 
I didn't have a bite of food for six months. I had a hose in my nose. Um, because of the brain damage, I, I lost the ability to speak and I didn't recognize my wife or my kids. And then at the last moment, they found a liver match and they gave me a liver transplant. And that was on May the 26th of 2014. Then they, I had to go through a lot of therapy there and, and rehab, and they sent me home September the 1st, and that's when I had to relearn how to walk, and that's when I started relearning how to play the guitar, and I, I worked on it and worked on it, and now it came time to, as the music came back, I thought, I wonder what would happen if I went up on stage. Now, as the guy who used to front the house band at Perks on Main Street, <laughs> uh, most guys, if they hadn't been on a stage in two years, they would go down to the local bar, get up and play a few tunes. Not me. I went to Royal Albert Hall in London, and I was there with Jules Holland and Paul Jones and Eric Bibb and Eric Burden and Kenny Wayne Shepherd and Buddy Guy and all these people, and it was a festival. and. Um, I got up on that stage and I didn't know what was going to happen. My wife introduced me and, but I counted the four. I turned around, looked at the band, counted the four and that band came in and I had this incredible experience where I, I said to myself, this is where I live. I'm at home. I've done this 10,000 times. I know how to do this. And uh, I knew I was back. You know, and then, but I only played two songs. It was a festival. I got up as a guest, did two songs, but we, it, you know, we went great. Then I came home and decided, I wonder how long I can stand up and play. So I went to Mulaney's there in Long Beach mm -hmm. um, with my band, and I said, I'm going to start playing, guys, and we'll see how long we can go how long I can still keep it going. And, and two hours later, the guy running the place came up and said, hey, you guys got to stop now. And that's when I knew, okay, I can do a full show with my band. But it was, it was a long time coming, you know. And I guess what I'm trying to say to what you were originally talking about is because this music was taken from me, and I had to really work and really fight to get it back. And I had to commit myself to it wholeheartedly. It now means more to me than it ever did. And I've been doing this since 1969. But it became a whole new thing. Walter, what did the coming out of what you came out of in Oklahoma, that kind of... Um hospital stay how do you think the music was affected afterwards did you do you find that you're playing um in having to relearn things um was it enhanced in a way that that is noticeable to you did it just get you back to where you were or did you play was it was there some new sense of purpose did it did it push you to to discover more things how did that situation for eight months affect your playing specifically one thing i can tell you is that i felt like I have much more to put into it, and I have much more I want to say. Maybe not things I can put into words, but feelings that I can express through the guitar, through singing, through writing. Um, as far as the way I played since I came back, when I listen to records I made before my illness, 
I think I approach it a little differently now. Um, the only way I could explain it is I think I approach it a little more linear than I used to. Um, mm -hmm. All my life, I, I started playing the guitar at age 10, and it came to me really, really quickly. I mean, um, I have a friend who I'm still friends with, and we were kids, and he said, Walter, you got a guitar on Friday, and I came over on Monday, and you were playing all these licks, you know. I said, it just came so quick to me, but um, when I listened, when I think back to those days, I, I all my life, I see the neck of the guitar in my mind when I play. And anything I want to play, I see it visually. And I can close my eyes. And now I see it differently. And it's very hard to explain. But I can tell you, emotional, I have so much more to put into it. And here's something, Chris, that I, I don't like to admit. But I have realized since I came back that I used to be on stage and there were many times I took it for granted. Even when I was back playing with John Mayall or I'm up there playing with Mick Taylor and John McVie or jamming with Buddy Guy or something, there were times that to me it was, this is what I do. I play gigs. I've been doing it since I was 18 years old. And um, there were times I'm up there playing, but in my mind I'm thinking, Oh, when I get back to the hotel, I wonder what's on HBO. You know, I took it for granted, not all the time, but I, I became aware that I had those shows where I was not completely there. And now when I go to do a show or write a song or make a record or play a solo on somebody else's record, I'm there. You know, I, I, am, I am in it. Um, You're taking nothing it. for granted. Yes, exactly. Talking with Walter Trout, blues legend at waltertrout.com. You can check out the new record, Ordinary Madness. Walter, you mentioned sobriety and, and, and how, um, how long it's been for you. There was a moment you've described before, an encounter you had with Carlos Santana that was um, important in your life, right? Can you, can you tell us about that? Well, I was playing with John Mayall, you know, the icon himself john mayall i'm up there in the standing in the place of eric clapton and mick taylor and peter green and um it was 1987 and we were in east berlin back when it was still communist because we used to do these state department tours um and we even made a record called behind the iron curtain Wow. So I was playing all over Russia and East Germany and, and Hungary and all these places with John. But we were in East Germany, in East Berlin, and we, were, um, we had a week in the same hotel as Santana and his band. And he played this venue one night, and we all went, and we were his guests. And then... The next night, John played the venue and Carlos was there. And he came up to me afterwards and I was rip-roaring drunk, you know, and, and all cocky and thinking, boy, I just kicked some butt and all this, you know, just an idiot, right? And, and he came up to me and he said, I was expecting him to say, hey, man, you played great. I was ready for that. 
And he goes, what's up with you, man? What are you doing? And I looked at him, I said, what are you talking about? And I'll never forget, he said, you're in a famous band. You're standing in a position in that band. There's 100,000 guitar players across the world would give anything to be in that gig that you are in. And you have a gift of music and you have, you have it put, it's right there for you, everything. You've got a great gig, you've got this talent, but you've been given this talent. And then I'll never forget, he said, but you're so drunk up there, you're doing this. And he looked up at the sky and he flipped the bird. He said, you're doing that to the one who gave you your gift. And uh, he was like disgusted, you know. And, and he said, you know, we need to talk, man. You, you got to do something with yourself. And he handed me a book and he said, I want you to go read this book right now. And he said, there's religion in it, but there's also psychology. So you take what you need from this book. And the book was called Discover Your Possibilities. And it was by Reverend Robert Schuler from the Crystal Cathedral. Now, the religion part, I didn't. You know, I didn't sit there and become born again or something, but the gist of the book was this. This is what the book said. Everybody has a gift for something. Everybody has something that they're passionate about or something they love doing, something they're good at. And what your responsibility in your life is to find your gift and to nurture it and develop it and be serious about it and get it to the very best of, of the talent you've been given. You know, be the best at it that you can be, and then you share it with the world however you need to. And by doing that, you are doing your little part to make the world a little bit better place. And that's what the book, that's Discover Your Possibilities. That was the name of it. And I read the book. I went up to my room in, in East Berlin there. I read the book. Overnight, I came down to breakfast, and uh, Carlos and I spent the next two days talking. And uh, I'm going to lose it here, but it's okay, man. I went, to, I went to John Mayle, and I said, "You will never see me drunk or high again." And that was uh, what was that, July 9th, 1987. Wow, Carlos Santana. Yeah. Now, I do have to say there were, I had been going in this direction a little while because John Mayall is like a dad to me, and he, had, he was sober while I was in his band, and he was always saying to me, hey, Walter, man, you know, you ought to think about what you're doing. Also, when I was home and not on tour, I had the house band at Perks, and playing in the house band at Perks with me was Richie Hayward, the incredible drummer of Little Feet. And Richie was sober. And he and I had been friends together when we were partying hardy. So I had Richie Hayward, I had John Mayall, and then Carlos was the final catalyst of the change. Wow, man. 
Walter, since you bring up perks, I know we've got a lot of folks listening now that uh, live in Huntington Beach or have some connection to Huntington Beach. You obviously have become sort of the musical patron saint of Huntington Beach in a lot of ways. Talk about your relationship with the city. When you first came here, the gig at Perks, which is a club that still exists on Main Street, and sort of the musical legacy that grew out of that place. But take us back to how you first come to Huntington Beach and, and, and what makes you want to stay here. I can tell you, I was raised on a little island in New Jersey, just south of Atlantic City. It's called Ocean City. Sure. And it's very long and it's very narrow. And you can stand in the middle of Ocean City and you look to the left, you see the bay. You look to the right, you see the ocean. And it's a resort town. There's a boardwalk and and the whole thing. And uh, I came out. To California, I was working a day job. Um, believe it or not, I was a drug counselor. That's a whole other story how <laughs> I ended up doing that. But I was a drug counselor at Jefferson University in Philadelphia. And I came to California on a vacation for two weeks. And I walked out on the pier in Huntington Beach. And it reminded me so much of my youth. And I felt so at home. I felt an immediate bond with that that town i i don't know what it was but i felt as soon as i walked out on that pier and on the beach i felt like yeah i know this place i intrinsically know this place and this is the type of place where i fit i'm an ocean guy i'm a beach guy you know and um so i basically went back to new jersey and packed my stuff and came out here Um, to seek a musical career. I didn't really know anybody, but I started going around to clubs and asking if I could sit in. But when I first moved out here, um, I had a friend who lived on College Avenue in Costa Mesa, and I stayed with him until I could get a place in Huntington Beach. What year would that have been? When was that exactly? When was Uh, that? When would that have been? I got to California on Halloween of 1974. Wow. So that's when you begin to plant your musical roots locally. And, uh, and then how, how long is it until you begin playing uh, the Golden Bear, obviously, in 1974 is going strong. Um, oh, you, yeah. you won't play there for a little while, but did you go there when you first arrived? Well, I know that I told this story on, on your site. <laughs> the first night I got here, um, I'll never forget this. You know, my friend is like, I'm going to show you around town, you know, and, and we spent the day driving around Southern California and he, he showed me, you know, we went to Huntington and we went to these different towns and, and these different places. And then we had dinner and that night he goes, you know, there's a club down on PCH and Linda Ronstadt is playing there tonight. And I'm like, well, let's go. You know, so we went there and and we were flat broke. I mean, we were just busted, you know, and we had no money, but we were outside on PCH and I was just caught up in the whole magic of the place. I'm standing there. The sun's going down. The lights are coming up on the pier. Um, There's people on Main Street. And then Linda Ronstead starts playing, you know, and we went to the front of the bear and they had those windows right. and we were standing there and the people who were sitting at the back of the room, cause the, you know, where the windows were, that was the back of the room from the bear and the stage was on the other side. 
they pulled open the curtains and my friend and I stood out on PCH and we watched the entire show of Linda Ronstadt. And um, that was my, you know, one of my first experiences in, in California. And I remember thinking, God, what a great club. I would love to play there. And it, it was not that long until I played there. I think the first time I played there was in 19, wow. 1975, I played there with Jesse Ed Davis, the legendary guitar wow. player. Um, and we opened up for Lee Michaels. <sighs> Whose big hit was, uh, you know what I mean? Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, so you played there, you were in a band with Jesse Ed Davis, who of course had a, I mean, played with everybody, had a really tight bond with, with John Lennon and, um, you know, countless other legends. So you were in a band with Jesse Ed Davis at that point? Yeah, because um, after I had been out here for a little while, uh, my very first gig in California, as I said, I was going around, going into clubs saying, could I sit in? I went to the Quiet Woman in Corona Del Mar on PCH, and they had this great country band. And, um, but nobody in the band could sing. I mean, they, there were these amazing musicians. It turned out they were, they were part of Dolly Parton's band, but um, nobody could sing. And I, I went up to him. I said, hey, man, um, could I? I said, I, I know every song by Merle Haggard, by Hank Williams, by Buck Owens. Patsy Cline, I know every tune. Can I sing one with you? And I ended up getting the job as a stand-up lead singer in a country western band. And I didn't even play the guitar. Wow. And um, but but one night, my girlfriend, I this girl I had met said, Hey, we're going to a party up in LA in Laurel Canyon. Let's go. And we went to this party. And in the party, there's Jesse Ed Davis, who I was this huge fan of, especially from his Taj Mahal work. True. The first couple of Taj Mahal albums, I still listen to them. His guitar work is incredible, right? And um, somebody said, well, he's looking, he's got his own band and he's looking for a keyboard player or a rhythm player. And uh, I went over and said, excuse me, Mr. Davis, I'm a big fan. I play the guitar. I just moved out here. Could I audition? And he said, who have you played with? And I said, well, I played with a bar band in New Jersey. And he, he said, I just made a record with, with Bob Dylan. The bass player there The bass player there plays with Rod Stewart and the drummer plays with Steve Miller. You think you can hang with us? And I'm like, let me audition. I ended up getting the gig, you know. So that was not not more than a year later that I was, um, you know, playing with Jesse Ed Davis, and we did that gig at the Golden Bear, and that was my first time. And then I played the Bear with a, a group called Bandit, mm -hmm. um, which was a local group. I I played there with um, Canned Heat. I played there with John Lee Hooker. I played there with um, Mick Taylor. I played there with John Mayall a week before it closed. Um, I also opened for a lot of bands with my own band. If, if you go into Jack's surfboards and you go into, you walk in the front door and you walk straight ahead and then just make a right, there is a mural up on the wall of the Golden Bear that was done by Bushman 
We mm-hmm. all know Bushman. He did a mural of the golden bear, and on the front of the bear, it says May 31st, John Lee Hooker, Walter Trout. And that was a real, that was a real marquee on the bear. Wow. When did you play with Mick Taylor at the Golden Bear? I played with him twice. Um, I played with him once the, the first time. I was in Canned Heat, which I had also played there with Canned Heat. And we did three shows opening for Mayall. This is when I met Mayall. Mm-hmm. Um, we did shows up north. John had the original Blues Breakers back together. He had Mick Taylor, he had John McVie, and he had Colin Allen on the drums. And we opened up three shows up in the Bay Area, and John and I met, and we hit it off, and we became friends. And after the shows, he said, hey, what's Can't He do in the next few weeks? And I said, we're not doing anything. And he said, well, I'd love to hear you play rhythm guitar for Mick Taylor, so why don't you come out on the road with us? So there I was. I was on the road with the original Blues Breakers, you know, which I got to say blew my mind because I'm the guy, half the stuff I learned on the guitar, I got off the Beano album, the Eric Clapton record with John Mayall, you know, I was such a fan. And uh, so the first time I played there was when, was with McVie, Mick Taylor and John Mayall. Then years, whoa probably four years later when I had been in John's band for a while, we played the bear and Mick Taylor got up and played with us. And uh, so that was twice. It's amazing. You know, to me, Walter, it always seems like the blues is something that's, that's more than any other musical form. I'm just saying this as a listener, not a player, but it's passed along. It's sort of handed over and handed over. And I can't think of any other musical form that feels like that. Is that, is that an accurate observation? Do you feel when you play with these guys, a male, a McTaylor, do you feel like you're, there's something that's being handed over to you that you're taking and then that you're going to ultimately pass along to somebody else? Yeah. You know, you just nailed it there, Chris. That's exactly what it is. There is a tradition with this music. And even if you, um, one of the things I'm trying to do is take the tradition of the music and take it to some other places and push the envelope a little. But I am deeply aware of the tradition of the music and how it gets passed from generation to generation. And uh, when I was up there playing with those guys or been up there jamming with Buddy Guy or hanging out with B.B. King or something, I'm very aware that I'm of a certain generation and they're handing me that torch and mm. that it's, it's now it's up to me to hand it off. And that's why I've, I've kind of made it um, a mission of mine that when I'm made aware of a young player with a lot of talent, I always get them up to sit in. And a lot of them, I, I help get them um, signed to record labels and I play on their first record for them. And I love seeing these young people who are carrying this on. I love that it's going to go on, you know? Yeah, there's something about it. It'll never die. Some, some musical forms may come and go, but the, the blues is just so deeply rooted in, the, I think, the purest of emotional expression, you know? It's such a part of American history as well. It's just, uh, there's no way it's not going to be carried on on some level. 
No, and I, I think there is always going to be an audience for a person who gets up and plays an instrument and sings and, and plays and sings from their heart and, and is trying to express a human emotion. And that's in, in my music, what I'm concerned with is the expression of emotion and the, the desire to communicate with people. And for us to kind of feel our common humanity and get past whatever divisions, I know that when I'm up there playing, um, that I've had this experience where I'm on stage and I'm playing the slow blues and I'm feeling it to my core. And I look out and there's a six foot six crusty looking biker dude and he's got tears coming down his face. And I also know when I'm up there playing, that it does not, if you're in that crowd, it doesn't matter if you're black or white or pink or polka dot. It doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat or straight or gay. All of that goes out the window because what that in that moment, we're all kind of bonded in our com what what is our common denominator between us? Not what makes us different, but what makes us the same. And that's what this music is about it's about reaching that point in people that that place beautifully said and and how great that you had a chance to play with people like Mayall, like taylor because i mean you know god bless the brits for recognizing american blues back in the late 50s and early 60s without their interest without the stones without the beatles without clapton Mayall, and everybody else really kind of bringing it to their own forefronts you know, they, they really helped refuel the interest and the passion and I think inspire people like you ultimately, right? They did. I mean, I'm 69 years old. So when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, I was uh, 13. And that just blew my mind. And the whole British invasion thing, for instance, I was a big fan of the Stones. I was a great fan of the animals mm -hmm. um and i would look on an animals record um and see well hey some guy named Hallen wolf wrote this song i'm gonna go get a record by Hallen wolf right oh look at this you know some guy named muddy waters wrote this song how about when the stones there was a famous tv show where they wouldn't go on unless Hallen wolf was able to go on with them you know what i mean they would you know, when they would go in and, and, and play chess records, they were, they were looking for opportunities, I think, to celebrate the music, to promote the music in a sense. And again, that trickled down to people like you. And again, without that, without that British push, I'm not sure we'd even be talking on the same level today. Yeah. Your experiences, that, you yeah. know. And that, that was Shindig. I remember yeah. that. And they yeah, brought exactly. out Hallenwolf. And they also had Hallenwolf. They didn't back him up. They sat in the crowd. And I... They and sat, at, was, they uh, sat like at his feet. They literally yeah. are sitting like at the altar, looking up at yeah. him in adoration. And I think that clip, you really see that they, they idolized their blues heroes. They weren't looking to take yeah. anything from them. They were just in awe that they, they were in yeah. a shadow at that point. Walter, you mentioned yes. a place called Perks, which is still around Huntington Beach. A lot of people locally um, you know, recall fondly your your history and legacy at that place talk about that a little bit too because that's a you know i like sort of hidden history of huntington beach and, yeah. and the perks story there it's not that hidden but it's a great chapter historically in terms of music talk about your residency there what that was like how it came about and just what it means to you well 
in um, around late 74, I was in a, a club band with some guys and we were playing around locally and we went over and auditioned at that time. It was called the main street saloon <laughs> and it was, it had vinyl booths and it had pool tables and it had like a 30 foot ceiling and it had a stage that was like six or seven feet high. You had to climb a ladder to get up on the stage and it was all Marines and bikers and danger and God, it was fun, you know? And, uh, I started playing there then. And, and for some reason, the people of Huntington Beach kind of took me to their hearts. And um, I started playing there when it was the Main Street Saloon. And the owner back then was Gary Mulligan. And Gary and I became great friends. Um, then it became, it changed its name to Mulligan's Roaring Twenties. That became the name of it. But it was still the same inside. My band was still playing there. Whenever I was at home, I was playing there, you know, um, every night. Um, the when I first started playing there, we started playing. It was just all the beer we could drink. We were playing to have fun. <laughs> and then we convinced, we convinced the manager of the club to give us $10 each. And um, so we were, all the beer we could drink, and we were making 10 bucks, you know. But we were having the time of our life, man. We were playing from like 8.30 to 2 a.m. and then partying all night, you know. And it was always a social scene down there. It was Back then, Huntington Beach was like a Steinbeck novel, man. There was a subculture on Main Street that was just incredible. The fishermen and the bikers and the, and the homeless guys and, all, and everybody hanging out. It was beautiful. And, Surfers um, and... The surfers, yeah, they'd be in there, girls in bikinis on Sunday afternoons. And um, Anyway, then Gary decided to remodel the place, and he completely gutted it and remodeled it and put in the little low stage that's in there now, and he took all the booths out and the pool tables, and he decided he was going to make it more, like, classy. And he actually, on the door, he had a dress code. And, and the door still exists. Um, Gary's, Gary's widow has the door now with the dress code. But, but dig this. He came to me and he said, hey, Walter, um, now that I've turned this into kind of this classy place, you can't play here anymore. And I said, why? You'll love this. He said, well, you attract the local scum. <laughs> <laughs> and about a month later, he was going bust, and he came to me and he said, it just dawned on me that the local scum drink a lot, and they love <laughs> you, so come on back. And uh, <laughs> so I was back in there, and um, I, I played there then. You know, basically, I started there in 1975, and I played there till about 2008, and that's when Gary died, and then I stopped playing there. I actually lived upstairs in the front window. I lived right over the front door. He was my landlord. So I could go, I could run downstairs. I could play a set with the band. Um, the band could go upstairs and we could, 
um, you know, imbibe whatever substances were available that night or grab a girl and go upstairs. And it was a blast, man. And uh, so I, you know, and I was very kind of honored in that um, for a while, anytime I was on the road, say, with Canned Heat or John Mayall, all I had to do was call up. This was when Buddy True ran was, was the manager of the place. Call up Buddy and say, hey, Buddy, I'm coming home next week, and I'd, I'd really like to play there again. And whatever band he had in there, he'd fire him. He'd say, well, Walter's coming home. You're out of here. And a couple of them sued him. But then he would put, so that the locals knew I was going to be there, he had a big sign he'd put on the front that said, fresh trout tonight. And um, it was just a blast. We also had a printed sign over the stage when we played. Um, I don't know. Um, am I permitted to use expletives or should I not? No, no, no. You're fine. But the sign said, and Buddy loved it, if it's too loud, get the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but it was, I felt like every night down there, we were having a gathering of the locals, and I was the social director. And uh, I was leading the party, man, and it was just a, a blast. It, no, it's the stuff of legend. It really is. I think it's the it's the ultimate um, Huntington Beach musical legacy. Is is your your you know reputation and history as the the artist in residence there? I mean, there's just no two ways around it. And and one of the things that was cool was that um, some of the people who came in there to play, you never knew. Uh, Richie Hayward, like I say, played there with me for two years. Garth Hudson came in and played. Um, Mark Hudson Taylor came in and played. John Mayall came in and played. T.M. Stevens, um, um, John Lee Hooker's band, Deacon Jones and Finest Tasby came in and played with me there. Um, Tina Marie, you know, from Motown Records, she came in there in front of my band and sang blues with me. I mean, you never knew who was going to show up there. It was amazing. Tina Marie, who sang with Davis. Oh, I, I got to get this out. Near the end of his life, Jesse Ed Davis was having a hard time getting a gig. I hired him, and he played in my band at Perks right before he died. So you could go into Perks and see Richie Hayward and Jesse Ed Davis playing in Perks. Unbelievable. The, the, and Tina Marie, who sang with Rick James, that same... Yeah, right. and, and yeah, incredible and she had a voice. Couple of hits on Motown, and she played every instrument. Like, yeah, really talented. Get up and she play guitar with us, or she play keyboards. Well, well, right there, that that's hidden history, right there. The thought that those guys played it. I mean, the Golden Bear, we know. I mean, that that's a matter of public record. But the thought that Jessia Davis, Mick Taylor, that a Rolling Stone was not just in Perks but playing in Perks is 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 incredible. It really, is something else. And you know something, um, Billy Gibbons used to come in there all the time, and nobody knew who he was. He, he had some one? friends. He had some friends in Huntington who were bikers, and they'd all show up on their bikes. They'd park them out on Main Street, and he just looked like one of the bikers. <laughs> and um, you know, I, I'm in a band with him now called the Supersonic Blues Machine, and it's one of his side projects. And at our first rehearsal. He walked up to me and he said, Perks, man, Perks. You still playing Perks? I went, no, I don't, man. 
but he didn't want anybody to know who he was. I knew who he was, you know, but he'd say, Walter, I, Walter, I just want to sit here and listen to you. I, you don't get, go get me up. I don't want people to bother me, but I'm going to sit here and listen to you. you know? <laughs> well, Walter, I mean, so first of all, I think we've got to plan um, a return. I don't know what your relationship is with the facility now, but I think we have to get you back in there for old time's sake and maybe have like a hidden history event once you're back in town. Is there any way you think that could be on the table? Well, we'll, we'll see. Um, also, the Black Crows used to come in there. Really? The Black Crows used to come in there and tell me that they were my big fans and they didn't want people to know they were the Black Crows. All right. You well, know, we, Mark listen. Ford and some of those guys. Let's, and, let's do uh, this. We, we have to do this. How do we figure this well, out? Well, here, here's a problem with that, Chris, is that when Gary Mulligan died, um, his wife, who is a, still a dear friend of mine, but she sold it. And the new owners took down any, any um, knowledge that I had ever played there. They had posters on the walls for me that I had played there, and they had newspaper articles, and they took it all down. And um, in some ways, I have such incredible memories there. And my wife and I figured out that conservatively, I did over 3,000 sets of music in that in that room but um the the owners um a lot of the soul left when my good friend gary passed on you know well how about this Uh, i'm going to put this out there just to us in the ether right now um whenever you're back into a i think when you're back in town we need to have a local gig so fans of yours fans of local history so we can all get together and enjoy you are you up for that that would be great Right. That's kind of what I do once a year at the coach house. Right. Well, you know, let's see. I I'm going to I'm going to see what can be done locally. Let let's do something in Huntington Beach, okay? Let me work that end of it and I'll just be in touch with you because I think this has to happen now. Life, you know, after the, what we're all going through the last few months, life is way too short. It got a lot shorter this year um in a lot of yeah. ways. So let's make up that time once you're back in town and figure out that gig. I will I'll do all the legwork on that, I promise, and we'll okay. make that happen, okay? okay. Leave but that I do have to say that when I play at the coach house now, um it normally sells out in about a day. I believe it. And uh, the first thing I do, I walk up on the stage and I go, "Has anybody here ever been to Perks?" and the whole place goes crazy, you know. <laughs> Well, on that, on that note, before we wrap up here, Walter, what, what does it look like from a performance standpoint now? I mean, obviously, um, everything's been thrown out of whack, but you, you've been sort of gently getting back on stage where you are, right? I've been following a bit. What's happening in your world as a performer? What do you see the next year being from what we know, at least as much as we know now? Okay. Um, I was on tour with my band. And I canceled the tour and came home on the 12th of March. Mm-hmm. And then I came over here on, in July. And I had been sequestered in the cabin here with my wife. And, and one of our sons is in Denmark where he's in the Royal Conservatory of Music. And he comes and visits. But um, about a month ago, these two Danish promoters who I've known for a long time called my wife and said, we would like to meet with you. There's something we would like to run by you. And they said, 
there's a great Danish band named Blindstone. And we would like Walter to play with Blindstone and we'll put you in a theater in this town called Skiva in the middle of, of Jutland in Denmark. And we'll, we'll, it's, the theater holds 700 people. We'll let in 150. The band will get tested. Um, it'll be safe and secure. And what do you think about it? And we said, yeah, let's give it a try. So they put it on. It sold out in 20 minutes. And uh, so they said, how about a second night? We went, sure. Then they said, well, let's do a third night in this other town. And we did that. We just did it in this beautiful old theater from, from the early 1900s. Now we've got five or six more shows coming in throughout Denmark. And just to get back on stage again and play the guitar and sing to people is just, just incredible. I, you know, I have to say it had been eight months and I was telling my wife, I don't know if I remember how to do this, you know, but I got up there again. It felt great. I watched, so I watched some of the clips. You absolutely remember how to do it. Those things were, the, the clips I saw were, were remarkable. I mean, you're so soulful and really uh, just a different kind of energy. It felt, it felt like you were really happy to be back. Yeah, but I'm really, my goal is to be back with my band I have, uh, now I, maybe I'm a little biased, but my band that I have, I consider the best band in the blues rock genre. I've got Johnny Graparik, who was 12 years with Slash, um, who was with Steve Winwood, who was with Carol King. He's the greatest bass player I know. I have Teddy Zigzag who was the touring keyboardist with Guns N' Roses and Alice Cooper. Um, he was also in Slash's Snake Pit and Slash's Blues Ball with Johnny. But he was also, when I say this, people go, oh, he's a rocker. And I go, he was also Carol King's musical director. So these guys can play anything. On the drums, I have Michael Lazier, who before me, he was with Edgar Winter and, and Roger Daltrey. I mean, I've got this amazing band. You can hear them on my new record, The Way We Play Together. And my goal is to be back on the road with those guys as soon as I can. But I have no idea when that's, that can happen. Well, look, you, you've started taking at least the steps toward getting back out and playing yourself. We know the band will be back, hopefully, you know, sometime early on in, uh, in 2021. And, uh, you know, the fact that you're kicking around a new album today, you've got this brilliant new record, the fact that artistically you're still, you know, mining what you can do. Again, I think that's a blues tradition, but I think it's a, it's a Walter Trout tradition, obviously, as well. And like I said, man, we're going um, to we're gonna arrange the gig back here in Huntington. We're going to make that happen. That's going to be its own historical event in Huntington, okay? We have yeah. to do that before uh I, I will tell you man i have a love of that town which is hard to express because when i when i i would that was when i met my wife in denmark and she thought i was a big rock star because over here in europe i i had a number one record in 1990 right but i said to her look don't you're coming to Huntington Beach with me? You need to know something. 
Um, yeah, over here in Europe, you think I'm a star. Well, in America, I'm a star on a two-block radius of Main Street in Huntington Beach. That's it, you know. And that town gave me a career in the States. When I had a hard time getting a gig, I always could go to Perks and pack the place and, and be valued and loved by the people of that town. Well, look, the way, you know, there are certain artists that have specific relationships with towns. Buck Owens had it with Bakersfield. I mean, you see it happen sometimes, you know, where there's just this relationship that, that gels and it's just the right chemistry. And that's absolutely yeah. the case with you in Huntington. So let's get you back here soon. Walter, this has been an absolute pleasure. This flew by, man. You're a great storyteller. And uh, everyone go to waltertrout.com. Check out the new music. Uh, support this artist. He is an absolute treasure. And uh, stay safe over there, Walter. But this was uh, what, what a great first conversation. This is our first conversation, man. It's great, man. I'm glad to finally uh, talk to you here. I hope I get home and we can safely sit down across the table from each other and hang out, man. We're going to do that, and we're going to do it at the gig as well, okay? I promise. I'm not great. letting go of that. Just so you know, this is something okay. where I get super persistent, so we are going to do that, okay? All right. This has really been really fun, Chris. Thanks for having me on your show. And I'm a fan of yours, man, you know? I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the great Walter Trout. Go to waltertrout.com today and check out his new album, Ordinary Madness. I think you'll really enjoy it. And keep an eye peeled for Walter's tour dates, which uh, hopefully will be happening sooner than later as the world slowly creeps back to normal. My name is Chris Epting. I thank you very much for listening once again to The Moment. And I'll be back at you here next week with another special guest. Thanks again. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.